our speaker tonight. Um, runs the uh, Be Reasonable podcast. Uh, he should be resting after organising QED, but he's here tonight. Um, without further ado, Michael Marshall. Ooh. All right, excellent. Uh, can everyone hear me all right? I realise we kind of deafened you a little bit with that horrible feedback, but that was probably my fault rather than anything else. Yeah, so I guess kind of uh, one of the reasons that I, that I kind of uh, wanted to start doing this kind of talk, and, and, and I really want to yeah, be talking really uh, to, to groups like this about pseudoscience and how um, how fun it can be to kind of get out there and play with it a little bit. Before I, before I kind of start and really go into that, um, it's probably worth giving a little bit of background on myself. Um, so... In 2009, uh, I was one of the co-founders of the Merseyside Skeptic Society, which is quite an active uh, skeptics group uh, based up in Liverpool. Um, and the, when we set up, it was probably very similar to the setup of, uh, of Oxford here, um, where what we were looking for really was a, uh, a place which kind of had uh, the opportunity to build a community for people in much the kind of same way that, uh, that the church has a community for people, but with none of the kind of superstition and pseudoscience and, and, and nonsense that's uh, associated with, with needing to, to have that at the heart of your community. So it was kind of a rationalist community in a place where people can go and, and not have that moment in a conversation, which we've probably all had, where you're casually talking and you're exchanging and then you say oh well you know well astrology that's all nonsense and then there's that kind of frosty silence in the room where you realize someone's a massive fan of astrology and you've really trod on a conversational landmine and it kind of all goes a bit, a bit odd so we kind of had a rule that there was no no sacred cows and no no ideas or beliefs that you'd hold and be there unless you could back them up with evidence and kind of justify them a little bit um but the reason we set up as a skeptic society rather than just a, a, a skeptics in the pubs or just the event itself, we're a skeptic society around that because we didn't want to just be looking in and provide a community. I mean, that's hugely worthwhile, but, it's, but we didn't want to limit ourselves to that. We also want to look out and say, what is there out there and what can we do about it? What kind of pseudoscience is out there in the world and, and how can we get our hands on it and how can we try and sort of spread a bit more um, sort of rationale and, and uh, positive thinking, and, not positive thinking in a nonsense sense, but genuine kind of, uh, genuine kind of thought and uh, and, and uh, critical thinking. So that's why we set up a Skeptic Society. Uh, and then that's, we've been doing that for five years, and it was actually just uh, about six weeks, seven weeks ago, that I was uh, appointed the project director of a skeptical charity, one of the few skeptical charities, uh, which is looking to do very much that kind of thing as well. So it's been quite a nice kind of uh, journey, and I want to take you through some of the kind of points that, that have sort of pushed me along the way and, and hopefully some interesting stories along the way. Um, but in, in doing quite a lot of skeptics in the pub talks in the past uh, and speaking to a lot of people, it, it slowly started to, to, to dawn on me that um, some people might have a mentality that, that pseudoscience is out there and we can, we can look at it, we can critique it. It's like it's in a, in a glass case in a museum. It exists and we can, we can look at it, we can examine it, we can really critique it, but we don't touch it. We don't play with it. We don't get hands-on. That's kind of, there's a step involved there. And I really have this, this idea that um, once you do sort of lift the lid and, and pick it up and play with it, you start getting interesting experiences. You start to get a better understanding of that pseudoscience and how people might believe in it. Um, and you also start getting quite interesting stories and anecdotes and, uh, and having interesting experiences and also quite unusual experiences. So I, I'm a big believer in sort of trying to engage with pseudoscience in that way. And I think that the, the first thing that I ever did that got me got me started in doing that kind of thing and looking into that kind of world uh, was an article in my local paper here, so the Liverpool Echo. Uh, and the article was talking about a guy from Skelmsdale, which is a, a suburb of Liverpool, um, who uses his remarkable psychic ability uh, to help people. Um, so he's been in touch with Princess Diana from Beyond the Grave, and at this stage, which psychic hasn't? Uh, pretty much every single one of them will, uh, will claim to have spoken to Princess Diana. She's probably the most communicated dead person uh, of all time. Um, 
And he also spoke with um, John Lennon. He had a seance and he communicated with John Lennon. And he got a, a, a mystical, wonderful message from John Lennon from Beyond the Grave. And John Lennon's message was peace, um, which requires a phenomenal amount of psychic acuity to get a, a message like that out of John Lennon, a man who was famously very against peace uh, throughout his entire life. Um, but the other thing that he does is, and, and this is the guy here, uh, Joe Power. Um, you can tell he's a psychic because of those that sort of fixed stare and the white shirt. So, male psychic, it's always a white shirt, a sort of a slightly white background on the front cover of his book there, The Man Who Sees Dead People. Um, but as well as contacting celebrities and, and uh, dead princesses, um, he also gets involved in missing persons cases. And this is where I started to think this starts to get a bit distasteful. And a particular one that he's getting involved with, with was um, Madeleine McCann. Um, and there's a particular bit I liked uh, where he said, I believe I've seen the face of the person who abducted Madeleine, and it's not dissimilar to the police photo fit. Um, so not only can he confirm John, and Le- John Lennon likes peace, he can also confirm that the police might have a clue what they're doing. I- I'd argue they take an equal amount of psychic ability to make both of those statements. Um, so I kind of looked into your power a little bit, because it seemed like this was a, a bit of a distasteful thing to be using for publicity, if you, if you ask me. Um, and it's not the first time he's done it, so this was an, another missing persons case. Does anyone recognise uh, Karen Matthews, Shannon Matthews? So 2008, there was a young girl by the name of Shannon Matthews who went missing. Uh, Joe went along and spent the entire day with her mother, Karen Matthews, and there's a photo taken there. Um, what Joe didn't pick up with all of his psychic acuity uh, was that Karen Matthews was involved in the abduction of her own daughter. It was kind of Ma- Karen Matthews and the, a creepy uncle, I believe it was, on the, uh, on the, on the far left there. Um, so in this picture, there's only one person who has any idea where the missing child is, and it isn't the psychic. Um, but again, he involved himself in this case. And in my, in my opinion, he involved himself in this case just to sell books or just to get people along to his, uh, his readings, to his shows. And there's a long history going back. The more I kind of looked, the more I found of a missing person's case here and a murder case there. You know, a, a body that was never found, but it's going to be found near water is always his classic line because we're an island. <laughs> He's in Liverpool. You know, you're pretty near water. And if it isn't found near the sea, if it's not found near a river, it might be found in a, in a bathroom. You know, there's plenty of ways that near water can hit. It's almost impossible to miss, really, if you look hard enough. Um, but the bit that kind of got me really interested, once I'd been looking online, was at the very bottom of this story where it said Joe will be signing copies of his book uh, in Waterstones on, on Ball Street, Liverpool. And I thought, well, actually, I live in Liverpool City Centre and Ball Street is just around the corner from me. I know where that Waterstones is. So rather than just kind of writing a blog about this, how about I go and speak to him? You know, he's having a, he's having a book signing. He wants to meet people. I'd quite like to meet him. Um, and I thought what I would do is I'd go along and uh, take him a, a copy of the uh, application form for the Million Dollar Challenge. So if anyone doesn't know the Million Dollar Challenge, um, there's an organization in America whereby if you have any paranormal ability and you can prove it under scientifically controlled circumstances where a cheat couldn't prosper, there's a guy who will give you a million dollars. And the money's there, it's in an account, it's just waiting to drop into the hands of a psychic or, or somebody who's got a paranormal claim and no one's ever got that money just yet and there's probably good reasons for that. Um, so I figured I would go along with this application form and I thought he's not going to take it. Because chances are he's, he's too smart to take uh, a test that might prove him to be fake. It might prove him to not have psychic abilities if he fails it. Or certainly it wouldn't prove he has psychic abilities. But what I thought I would do is, if there's a big long queue of people looking at the book signed, I could grandstand the queue a little bit and say, oh, I've got this test here. Oh, Joe's going to show those skeptics wrong. Oh, he's going to prove once and for all that this stuff exists. And then when he refused, maybe some of those people would ask questions. Maybe I'd kind of put a kernel of doubt in a few people's minds. And there was only one real problem, was that there was no queue. He had no audience. This was Waterstones. There was no audience at all. Nobody turned up apart from me, um, which, which didn't go as well as either of us had hoped. 
Um, so I kind of bottled it and I, I went upstairs in the Waterstones. I thought, oh, I saw him there. He was sort of sadly sort of, he was sat at a little table by himself, sadly signing copies of like 25 copies of his book and like 20 of them were still there two months later because I did check. Um, so I bottled it. I went upstairs. I was waiting for a friend of mine and then I was upstairs and I was beating myself up thinking, you've got the application from here. What were you expecting to happen? You know, you, you wanted to be out, you wanted to be playing with this, you wanted to be kind of engaging with this stuff and then the first opportunity you had, you kind of bottled it. So my friend arrived and I thought, we'll go downstairs, we'll talk to him anyway. We got downstairs and he was gone. And he didn't see me coming. Someone suggested that. It's not that he saw me coming. He's not actually psychic. Um, and I was, again, I was kicking myself. And then I saw him walk past the door with his, his wife, who was also his manager. So I thought, well, I'm not going to let this happen again. I'm not going to miss this again. So I walked out and I walked up to him on the street. Uh, and uh, I, I decided to then sort of present him with this, uh, this million dollar challenge. So it wasn't in Waterstones. It was actually about here, uh, which was outside of a plus size lingerie shop, uh, which I don't know how, how the, the two of us looked having a, a, a bit of a conversation outside of there. Um, so I walked up and I said, hiya, Joe, um, I've seen the, the work that you do and I'm a huge fan of it. Um, I just want you to kind of prove that you've, you can really do this. Uh, and then once you do prove it, I want to be your biggest fan. I want to shout from the rooftop, stick it all of our side that you are a proven psychic. And he said, are you the one who's been writing about me? I said, I've written a few things about you, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't actually think you've got psychic abilities, but if you can prove it, you do. I'll, I'll take it all back. I'll, I'll tell everyone. And he said, people like you make me sick. He said, you sit in front of your computer festering away until three o'clock in the morning plotting to bring down people like me in exactly the same way that paedophiles plot to kidnap and rape children (laughs) which I thought was an odd opening gambit I thought if you're going to play the paedophile card hold it back you know you've got to have somewhere to go um, but what he was really trying to do was provoke me so that I would then react quite extremely and he'd be the guy who from a distance would walk away going, oh, this person's shouting at me, I'm going to walk away the bigger man and everyone would think that I'd said something really aggressive when it was actually him who'd said something quite, quite abhorrent, uh, abhorrent and it was a couple of things that he said like that. Um, so in the end, I, I didn't rise to that. We had a long kind of conversation back and forth. I realised I wasn't going to get anywhere so I said, look, enjoy your, your, your day. I've, I've probably taken up too much of your time. It was nice meeting you. Have a nice, it was a sunny afternoon. You're there with your family. Have a nice day. Um, and I had no intention of using that story at all until a couple of days later, um, a report emerged on the internet that Joe had been attacked that day by a mob. And I thought, I'm that mob. I read the story, I am that mob. Me and my friend are that mob. That paedophile mob was us. Um, and this is a bit disturbing. Um, so I got in touch with Joe. I dropped an email to say, look, you, it says here you've been attacked by a mob. You know it didn't happen that way. I know it didn't happen that way. Um, but... I didn't want to tell the story, but if, if you don't, if you, you need to clarify this, because otherwise it makes us look really aggressive and nasty, and I wasn't that. I said good day to you at the end, we, we left very pleasantly. Um, but if you, if you don't sort of do that, I'll, I'll be forced to tell this story. And I said I wouldn't, but I'd be forced to. Um, and in the end, he didn't get back, so I, so I wrote the whole kind of story up about psychic dual power and the two-man mob. Um, <laughs> And this got about 10,000 views within a week. It was really quite embarrassing for him. If you Google his name, it's one of the first things that comes up even now. Um, and that was all kind of quite fun. I thought this was quite an interesting, odd experience to suddenly... I was only there to sort of meet the guy and to hand him an application form for a challenge. And all of a sudden, I'm being slandered and he's saying all sorts of really crazy things about me. This is quite, quite exhilarating. And then a couple of days later, I got a phone call from Ormskirk Police. Uh, Ormskirk being another part of Liverpool. Uh, and I said, is that Michael Marshall? I said, yes, it is. I went, what, from the Merseyside, Me- Merseyside Skeptic Society? I said, yeah. He said, do you know Joe Power? I said, yes. He said, do you know he's been receiving death threats? And I genuinely said, oh, shit, really? Oh, God, that's awful. Who from? And the policeman said, um, you? 
like, right, it's bull. And I said, it's bullshit, honestly. It's and I took him through the whole story and said, actually, he's just trying to, I think he's trying to silence us because we've been quite critical of him and this has been quite embarrassing for him. I don't, I don't wish him any personal harm. I only wish him professional harm because I don't believe he can do what he can do, uh, what he says he can do. And if, and if he proves he can do it, we'll even back off. But he, he won't ever prove that. And the police said, look, we understand. I, I think from reading your website, from seeing how open you are about it, we think that you're, you're probably all right. But maybe he's got the wrong end of the stick. So would you email him and let him know that you don't wish him any harm? I said, I'll go one better. I'll put it front page of our website. Um, so that's exactly what I did. So, uh, so here's, uh, that was the story in The Guardian talking about uh, this, this, uh, this conversation I had with Joe. And here's the front page of our website where I kind of clarified that I hadn't made these death threats. Now, Joe Powell almost certainly did hear these death threats. I'm sure he did. He probably did. Um, I didn't make them. And nobody else has even heard them. Which means, logically, the only place it could have come from is the dead. Because he's the one who hears from the dead. No one else seems to. So I presume it's the dead who are sort of uh, having a go at him. But he kind of made it up, because making up death threats and, and calling the police to try and silence your critics by pretending you're getting death threats is probably an offence, like wasting police time. And wasting police time is nothing that Joe Power would ever do. Like the time in 2009 they got involved in the missing persons case of Madeleine McCann, or the time in 2008 where he got involved in the missing persons case, or in 2007, 2006. I'd argue wasting police time may well be a lot, a lot of what he does. Um... So again, we, 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 I kind of wrote this whole kind of thing, but it, it went everywhere. And, and it kind of got me thinking about other kind of psychic experiences, because I thought, well, this is a really nice opportunity to, to see the weirdness that's right under your, your nose, really. I mean, it was just around the corner from where I live, and it was, it was this really weird story unfolded. And I thought, well, what else is out there? And then just a couple of streets away from where I lived, there was a spiritualist church. Does everyone know spiritualist churches? Um, they're, they're basically, the spiritualist belief is that we know there is an afterlife because psychics can talk to the dead. And those dead must be somewhere, so it must be heaven or hell, and it must be an afterlife, therefore soul, God, the spirits, everything, because of psychics. Um, which is quite an interesting extrapolation from what is ostensibly a magic trick, if, if, you know, in, in my opinion. So I thought, well, I'm going to go along with this spiritualist church. Because the cool thing about spiritualist churches is, you go in there, you sing a quick song, which is barely, is barely even a hymn, and then they'll just do a psychic show in front of you um, for an audience of about 50 people. And you get to see a really cheap psychic show. It's about two quid. Rather than paying 20, 25 quid to see Sally Morgan or, or you know, it's about two quid. It's great. Um, and the good thing about it is, sometimes you get someone really interesting and really good, and that's quite interesting. And sometimes you get someone who can only do psychic shows for two pound a head, which isn't the highest grade psychic of all time. And that's, that's a real car crash, and therefore even more interesting in a way. Um, so here's, here's kind of the in inside of that uh, spiritualist church. So the one that I saw was really, really fascinating. Um, there was this quite elderly lady up on stage. Um, she had a very grandmotherly feel about, uh, you know, woolen cardigan, tissues up every sleeve, that kind of thing. Um, and she was doing a reading for two people in the middle of the audience. And she'd been very, very good about something weird, like it was a, a wardrobe that was in the house when they first moved in, and they've never touched this wardrobe. They keep meaning to get rid of it, never have. And it was oddly specific. And then she started slipping and a few things started going wrong and she wasn't kind of getting any hits anymore. She was, she was going astray. And then it got very messy and it was clear that she'd kind of lost it again. And then she must have needed to blow her nose or something because she pulled a tissue out and put it away again and got very, very good again. And I, thought, I, just, I just saw you. It looked like you just checked your notes because I, I couldn't figure out how you'd done it. And it looked like you just checked your notes. And nobody in the room seemed to care. Nobody in the room seemed to be bothered by the fact that I'd just seen someone, what appeared to me, check their notes and, and to cheat in front of me. And this was even more exciting. I found a live cheat, as far as I could say, in front of me. Um, and it does speak to just how seductive the idea that we're talking to the dead actually is, that everybody in that room saw what I saw. And I don't think anybody else cottoned on to the fact that, they were, that, in my opinion, she was cheating because everyone else was there because they'd lost someone. Everyone else was there because they were genuinely going to hear from someone they loved. And why would you pick at that 
Why would you pick at that idea and, and start tugging at the threads of it in case it falls apart and you're not hearing from the person that you're grieving, you know, you're grieving for? Um, so that, that idea that, that the vulnerability of bereavement is incredibly powerful at blinkering people to what is, in my opinion, an outright cheat in front of them. So I thought that was very, very interesting. That was one of the, kind of the really interesting things I found. And I, I, I spoke to the, um, to, to the person that I was getting, that got that reading. And as it transpires, the person who got that reading was the brother of the woman who runs that whole day, who, who runs the church. And the psychic on stage, it was her second show of the day. So she spent the entire afternoon with the woman who ran that church. So I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to imagine that at some point the person who ran that church said, oh, my brother's coming along a little bit later, and just normal conversation over tea and cake. Um, before you know it, if someone's taking notes because you're not expecting them to cheat, that's one way that that information could have come out. I mean, maybe she was psychic, but I could certainly see that's another route of, uh, of, of that information escaping if someone wanted to try and to, to take that and then use it to cheat. So that was, again, was one of the most exciting things I kind of found. I, I found what, I, what seemed to be now a live cheat. I was really excited. Um, and I thought that was the, the best it would get that evening. Um, I was sat about there. Uh, and then I looked along the row of seats from where I was sitting and sat with a pad and a pen was Joe Power. <laughs> so I kind of had a mixed feeling of like, wow, oh shit. And I had to sort of hide. I just very clearly ducked down in my chair. Um, so why would he be there with an A4 pad and a pen taking notes on all the readings that were going on at that church? It might be because he does chores in town. And if you're the kind of person who goes to a spiritualist church regularly, maybe you're the kind of person who'd show up at a psychic show. And maybe if he recognises just one of the people who were there in the audience and can regurgitate back to them just something that he wrote down that was very specific, that's a career maker. You know, that's the kind of thing that that person goes away saying, there is no way in the world he could have known that. How do you know that? It could only have been psychic. Because it's not like he could have been there in the room the last time a psychic told me it. Because nobody thinks that psychics would go to that level of, of uh, effort to cheat. And so nobody checks for this kind of thing. And it was, it was a real kind of eye-opener to me. Um, now, unfortunately, I couldn't actually get to the show directly after that spiritualist evening. I, I, I had to be out of the country. Um, so instead, I went to this show. So this was the one from uh, August last year. He does them regularly. Um, so I thought, well, I've, I've kind of been along, but what, what's it actually like to see Joe Power operate, to see a, a stage psychic really, really operate? And I'd seen a couple by this point. Um, so I thought I'd kind of share with you uh, what it's like, because I took my iPhone, I had it sort of propped up in my, uh, my pocket. So I've now got undercover footage of, of the, uh, the introduction, a couple of little bits. It's not the best footage in the world, but what I think is quite interesting is you've got to bear in mind that um, because of uh, the, the, the laws around uh, trading standards, um, if a psychic, a psychic has to leave, its, leave their audience um, with the impression that this is entertainment, you can't be leaving with the impression that this is genuinely someone talking to the dead. Nothing in their literature can say this is genuinely happening. Because if, if it says they're genuinely happening, they become a trader rather than an entertainer, and they fall under trading standards laws, which means if you don't think they're talking to the dead, you can get your money back and you can do them for fraud. So maybe if you get the idea that this is entertainment from, uh, from this video... Uh, how do I get the video to play? Ah, sorry, there we go. Sorry about this. Uh, so yeah, this is the introduction. Sorry about that. So I think that's pretty unequivocal that he's leaving people the impression that he's actually doing this. Nothing about his uh, literature said for entertainment purposes only. And this genuinely said you are definitely going to hear from the dead. Which kind of makes it even more tragic that he's really crap. He's a really bad cold reader. He's probably worse than that old lady with the, uh, the, the, the sleeves and the, uh, the tissues. Um, so this is a bit that I, that I think is quite interesting. It's just a, there's a whole kind of hour of footage of this. But this is a, a, about a 45 second clip. Um, which I think shows a couple of things. First of all, the callousness of the way that he does a reading for someone. 
and you'll see in a moment that I, that I think it's quite callous. But there's also some interesting language stuff as well, which I'll talk you through. But I'll, I just want to show you this first. Okay, so the, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, his psychic reading for the person there is, would she have hung herself? Well, yeah, that's how you found that person. You said, does anyone know someone who hung herself? I do, right. Did she hang herself? Yes, yes, she did. Um, there's also an interesting linguistic thing he threw in there. He said about this, uh, this spirit coming through. Was she not close to you then? He wor- it, it sounds like it's a casual question. It's very specifically worded because if you say yes to that, was she not close to you then? Yeah, she was. Yeah, I could tell she was close because she's saying she's very close to you. It's a question that can go either way. Was she not close to you then? No, she wasn't. Yeah, I could tell she was not close to you. So she said she's not family. She's not close to you. But because you're following it up by saying, yes, because she's told me she's not family, she mustn't be close to you. The psychic then makes the fact that they just asked a question which was open-ended and could have gone either way disappear and makes it sound like they actually give specific information, which they really didn't. And it also shows just how many questions there are. But I just, I think it's so callous the way he talks. This is people who've lost someone. And he says, does anyone know somebody who took their own lives? And then to clarify, he says, as in hung themselves. I just think it's a bit, it's a bit much, really. And again, I think even getting to this point where you're having this, where I'm now seeing him live and seeing how, how horrible this is done and, and how people, again, aren't batting an eyelid, they're kind of going with it. It just shows that once you start picking, beyond, once scratching the surface and getting a little bit more involved, you have these weird experiences and odd stories. And this kind of took me on to another psychic um, who you probably recognise. Um, so, everyone knows Psychic Sally, Sally Morgan? So, in 2011, there were allegations made that were, that were printed in a newspaper um, that she was using an earpiece during her performance. Uh, at a show in Dublin. So what happened was there was two people uh, at a show in Dublin who believed they heard men's voices from the back of the room where the sound desk was saying things which Sally then said later on the stage. That was what these two people believed that they, they heard and they believed that meant that she was receiving messages. Um, Sally was very vehement to say she didn't wear an earpiece, didn't use anything like that on stage. So you cannot say that Sally wears an earpiece. Um, I mean, there's that one. There is that one. Um, but that one apparently isn't an earpiece. That's just a microphone like this. So she can't get any information. There's no way that anyone can convey information to Sally. That's just for her to, to broadcast. So there's absolutely no way at all that Psyche could get it. Well, I mean, there's this earpiece as well. Obviously, there's that earpiece and this headset. But that earpiece isn't for someone to give her information. That's for the director to give her information, to, to give her stage directions, about which the, the, the magician pulls in and said, what stage directions does a psychic need if they're talking to the dead? The stage direction is basically take two steps forward, pretend to be a dead girl. You know, it's nothing, nothing more than that. Um, where we got now? Yeah, so, but there was this allegation that Sally was using an earpiece to receive messages to, to fake being uh, a psychic. Now, she sued the Daily Mail over that, and, and, I, and I don't believe that the story that came up in, in uh, Dublin was actually what was happening at all. So I think uh, that's, that's something I want to make clear, that I, I don't believe that story was the case. But psychics could use an earpiece to cheat. Um, and if I was a psychic, I might use an earpiece to cheat because I'm not, I'm not actually psychic. So if, if I was to do it, I'd have to cheat. I'd, I might use an earpiece. And one of the things I might do is do something that um, Peter Popov was doing. So Peter Popov was a, a huge psychic and faith healer in America. Um, and what he was found doing was he had an earpiece. His wife was, uh, was up in the stands. She was feeding him information. And she got that information because she was walking around and she had their people walking around the auditorium before the show started, just chatting to people as if they were normal punters. Because people don't expect a psychic to have confederates in the audience listening to your conversation. So, oh, who, who have you lost? Who are you looking to get in contact with? Oh, I hope it comes through. And they'll write that down, and then that's what they'll feed to the psychic when they're live on stage. And all of a sudden, it looks like that's, you know, that's a connection coming through. 
And another thing that you could do is, is called a billet read, where people write on pieces of paper what it is that they want to hear from the psychic on the other, on the other, uh, from the, the, the spirit on the other side. And then that information will come through via a psychic. This is a very, very old technique. It goes back a couple of hundred years. Um, and it's a magician's technique that there are ways of reading that piece of paper in ways that you know, it's not clear you've read it. And then people will think, well, I wrote that down. You didn't see it, so this must be psychic coming through. Um, now, we can't say that Sally does anything like that. But if I was to cheat, I would do something like that. But what we, what we can say is that Sally asks people to write down information before the start of the show and their name and has that all uh, on piece of paper before the show starts. So this is a, a photo I took of one of her love letters, which says, write down what you want to find out and write your name down. And she has all these pieces of paper going in a glass bowl uh, in, the st- in the front of the auditorium, uh, in, the, in the lobby, in the 45 minutes or so before the show starts. And then that, that glass bowl goes directly on stage. But for a moment, it does go backstage. Now, I'm not a psychic. If I was going to cheat, the, the moment that goes backstage, I'd take that as a perfect opportunity to grab a handful of those pieces of paper and memorise them before I go on stage. And then suddenly I can make connections in exactly the way that people um, have written down and appear that I was genuinely psychic. And all the way through Sally's show, what she does is, when that ball's on stage, she says, and by the way, I haven't even gone near the ball yet. I've been getting readings from over here. I want to come to your ball, but I haven't done that yet. Um, And I would argue that that resembles, at least cosmetically, a magician's convincer. So when a magician gives you an envelope and says, I couldn't have possibly touched that envelope. You've had it in your hands the whole time. I couldn't have got in there. I don't know what's in there. Well, of course you do. You're a magician. This is the trick. You must have done. But by telling me you haven't, you reinforce in my mind, so I forget the time that... You, know, you switch the envelopes with me or that the glass ball went backstage. Um, so that, that's one way to do it. But when I did go and see Sally live, and I've seen her a couple of times now, there were some things that really disturbed me that I thought were, were quite surprising and I personally felt quite disturbed by them. So she'll show you a video this, when you first come and you take your seat. She'll show you like a 10, 15 minute video of highlights of her tour. If I was going to cheat, that's the time that I would use for me as a personal cheat. I would use that video to, for all my preparations. Um, but in that video... One thing that Sally, Sally did, um, she was connecting with this woman who was at the front of the stage, and she was getting her mother coming through. And she was saying, oh, and your mum keeps saying to me, little Baileys, little Baileys, did she like a drink, your mum? Little Baileys, did she like a drink? And the woman said, no, my mum didn't drink. Oh, that's really weird, because she's definitely saying to me, little Bailey, little Baileys, does that mean anything to you? And the woman said, yes, it does. Um, Bailey was the name of my son who died. And Sally goes, oh, I thought you were saying little Baileys like the drink, but you were saying little Bailey like your dead son. That's my words, not hers. Um, Now, in that situation, either Sally's genuinely psychic and the the message that's coming through is absolutely genuine and she's just misunderstood it or the person conveying it from the other side has has misconveyed it and Sally's made a genuine mistake. If she isn't psychic, then she's perhaps seen on one of those pieces of paper the words, is my son Bailey in heaven with his nan? And she decided overtly to regurgitate that on stage, but to play it for laughs by pretending it's about an alcoholic drink, to pretend she's misunderstood it. She's played it for laughs and for shock if she isn't psychic. Um, and personally, I think if, if the latter of those is true, that's quite disturbing. And there's another thing I saw that Sally did that, that I felt quite, uh, quite upset by too. So she gets possessed by people and by spirits when she's on stage. And she, she'd established with this, this mother in the audience, and she was just talking to this mother, and she established that this, this mother's young daughter had drowned, maybe five, six-year-old, something like that. And then she was possessed by the spirit of that drowned daughter. And she said, Mummy, Mummy, I can't breathe, Mummy. Mummy, it hurts, Mummy, I can't breathe, I'm scared. Or again, if Sally's genuinely psychic, she can't help that the spirits are taking her over, and that's, that's just a genuine thing that's happening. And if she isn't psychic then she's decided to do that. She's decided to play on the grief of a a bereaved mother for the entertainment of 1,500 paying people. 
Um, and that's why I think it's really, really important to establish whether people are psychic or not. And they could be psychic. And if they are psychic, great. Because the way I think about it is, if I was genuinely psychic, personally, it would really upset me that anybody could think I was faking those instances right there. Because I think that's really ghoulish. If those were fake, that's quite ghoulish. That someone's decided overtly to really play on those tragedies. So if I was genuinely psychic, I would take any test available to try and prove that I was genuine. Because this, this would just burn me up that someone could think I could be that much of a monster. But other people have different priorities. Um, but we did offer Sally a test. So uh, in 2011, uh, um, this is about the time that everything was, was sort of happening, we said, we, we know what you do on stage. We've seen your kind of act. We've designed a, uh, a test based exactly on what you do on stage. You're in Liverpool the day before Halloween. So let's get together on Halloween and, and test your abilities. If you can talk to the dead, great. We've got that million dollars. You'll get it straight away. It's all kind of uh, arranged. And what we heard from Sally, or rather what we heard from Sally's lawyers, um, was that Sally has better things to do than take any test. And again, I think that's, that's, that's a shame, and I, I think it's sad, because if I was a genuine psychic, I would feel that this test was really, really important. But, I, but of course, I'm not a genuine psychic, and I would have to cheat to be a psychic. And if I was going to cheat to be a psychic, what I would do, I wouldn't use um, people, I would probably use an earpiece, but I wouldn't use people at the back of the room, because I think that would be a bit silly, because people might hear you coming. So what I, I would use someone behind the stage if I was going to cheat. Um, but what I, would, what I would do quite specifically is I'd make sure I was using a radio frequency that the sound desk couldn't tap into, because maybe the sound desk would get what I was getting at the same time I was getting it, and maybe they would start saying it, and maybe people in the audience might hear it at the same time and think that they were giving me information. So if I was going to cheat, that's how I, I'd be really careful about that. Um, and I'm being very careful about other things too. Um, but in the end, she didn't take our test. But it did make us think, what if someone did take our test? Could we get, are, there any, are there any psychics out there willing to put themselves under test conditions? So will they say, this is what I do, this is how I do it, let's test them. And in the end, yes, there was. So in 2012, we had the Halloween test again. These are two lovely psychics, Kim Witten and uh, Patricia Putt, uh, with myself, uh, Simon Singh from the Good Thinking Society, uh, who I, I'm now employed by, uh, and, uh, and Chris French from uh, Goldsmith University. And so this was a really interesting experience because we had the chance to say, well, if you were going to test a psychic, what do you do to control, to make sure that somebody can't cheat, um, even if you don't think they're going to cheat? Well, you don't want them to see the people they're doing a reading for because they might get visual clues. They can't speak to them and ask questions because they could just ask them information to come back. So you've got to have that off. So you've got to have two psychics who are willing to sit on a, on a chair in front of a divider with a participant behind the divider that they can't see, never get any sort of communication from. And our two psychics were very happy to do that. One read aura fields that went around the divider and through the divider, uh, and the other spoke to uh, the dead, and those dead could just walk around the divider. That's a thing that can happen in the spirit world, apparently. They've learned to walk around dividers. Um, but what else could you do to stop them cheating? Is there anything else that could seep through by mistake? Well, what if when they're sat writing down what they can feel from the other side of the stage, what if a, a, a police car goes past and there's a big alarm? a big alert, you know, a siren going off, and then they write something that kind of refers in a vague way to that, like, Yo, you, you, you feel surprised while I'm writing this, or you, you feel sh- shocked while I'm writing this, and someone accidentally picks up on that. So you've got to make sure that you're very careful and you go through anything they write with a black marker pen, take out anything that could perhaps be cheating, even if you don't think they're cheating. Um, you also think, well, we'll put the people on the other side of the, st- on the, other side of the divider, we'll have five people, all the same gender, roughly the same age, ideally roughly the same socioeconomic background, so you can't just play statistics. Um, but then you go a little bit further, you think, well, what if you can pick up on the smell? What if one of our participants is wearing very strong perfume and the others aren't? Then the psychic could write down, well, you really care about your appearance. You really care about taking time. You take time of how you get ready and, and you like to be meticulous. And maybe that will come through. So you've got to tell people, don't wear perfume. 
you've got to check every single reflective surface to make sure there's no way of seeing anything because any little hint could get through and suddenly you know, you've lost a million dollars worth of someone else's money. Um, so I think even though we, we didn't overturn the world, in the, in the end, neither psychic was actually psychic. It was, a, it was a bit of a shame statistically. Neither of them were any more psychic than you or I. But even though we didn't find someone who was psychic, I think we learned a lot in the process, and I certainly feel I learned a lot about the mentality of people who do this and genuinely believe, and I think the people who take the test genuinely believe it, and I think that's really sort of fascinating. Um, we'd had two people taking it. It should have been three. It should have been this guy. He's psychic because he's wearing a white shirt on a white background. You can tell that. He's got the stare. Um, this is a guy called Wayne Isaacs from uh, Psychic Live TV, which is, I think it was based in Dublin, uh, certainly out of Ireland, but it was broadcast from uh, Budapest for tax reasons, I think, or for, for financial reasons, I forget exactly why. Um, and he agreed to do the whole psychic challenge. He was willing to be our third psychic, and he was really up for it. He really wanted to, he thought it sounded a fun idea. He really wanted to test his abilities. Um, and we had a long back and forth, and he was all on board. And then the, the week, I think it was, before Halloween, he emailed me to say, Hi, Michael, um, I'm really sorry. I can no longer take part in your test because my spirit guide won't let me. Because my spirit guide has told me that it won't be on television. Which I thought was very interesting the spirit guide really cared about his TV career. Um, so I emailed back and said, look, Wayne, I completely understand. You must be in such a bind because I can tell you really want to do the test, but that spirit guide just won't let you. And you have to listen to your spirit guide because if you don't have a spirit guide, you're not really psychic. So you have to rely on your spirit guide and you can't go against him. It's just a shame that given that you regularly predict the future on your show that your spirit guide wasn't able to see that it wasn't going to be on television at any point during the protracted three months of planning this test, because that would have saved us all a lot of back and forth. Um, and I got an email back from that just said, my spirit guide thinks one week is adequate notice. <laughs> Ooh, check his spirit guide out. So maybe that's why he didn't do it. Maybe he had an uncommunicative spirit guide. Um, there might be another reason. I think it was around about the same time. I need to look at the chronology, but certainly there was a moment on Psychic Live that Wayne Isaacs was phoned up by a guy called William. And he started doing a reading for this guy called William. And William, it, it transpired as the reading kind of went on that William grew up in America and he was really into basketball and he played with a lot of his friends kind of after school every night. Um, but it was a bad part of America. I think he was in Philadelphia. And there was a really bad part and he got into a lot of gang fights and he got, he got beaten up. Um, and so his mum got really scared and moved him to live with his auntie and uncle in Bel Air. <laughs> And at that moment, the colour drained from Wayne's face. So five, five, ten minutes into a cold reading for someone pretending to be the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, I don't know where his spirit guide was watching his TV career at that moment, but he's not been on television since, I don't think. Um, so it, it's hard to say exactly why Wayne didn't, didn't get involved. And, and you know, it, it's a shame he didn't get involved, because while the spirit guide might, not, might only care about television, he clearly didn't care too much about the newspapers, because we did get this quite prominent in The Guardian, so we got a nice part about us calling out for psychics. Uh, we got a nice article in the BBC about it, where they were talking about the research that we did and how we kind of structured it and, and what the results were. Uh, and actually, the BBC story was the uh, top five, that was the fifth highest ranked st education story of the year. So in 2012, on the BBC site, it was, in, it was the top five, um, which I think is really cool because we've got this really big story about how you can test psychics and this is how you do it and this is what happens when you do. And this was really high, really, really widely read. And again, this is just that, that kind of experience of sort of going that little bit further and sort of playing with stuff and seeing what comes along afterwards. Speaking of which, this takes me to the, kind of the next area I want to move on to. Has anyone ever been to a mind-body-spirit festival? No one? Really? They're amazing. They're so much fun. Go to a spiritualist church. Go to a mind-body-spirit festival because you'll find every piece of nonsense under the sun in there. It's absolutely amazing. Um, I was at one uh, a couple of weeks ago in Manchester, and there was this guy there who was selling it like a... 
I'm not sure what it was. It was called neem, which was uh, an extract from a tree taken from India. Um, and he, you could use it for your dental hygiene. You could brush your teeth with it. You could use it as moisturizer. You could use it as shower gel. It, had, it was one of those kind of cure-all snake oils, basically. And the guy selling it to me, there's always a bit of a red flag when someone grabs you, when grabs your attention, brings you over and says, you've got to be careful in one of these places because there's a lot of charlatans around. I thought, oh, is there? Mm. Um, but he was, he was remarkable, this guy, because he said, um, I mean, I've been using this neem, you know, he was an Indian gentleman, he said, I've been using this neem for the, last 50, for the last 40 years or something like that, he said, and you wouldn't believe that I'm 86 now. And I thought, no, because you're in your 60s, mate. <laughs> you're definitely not 86. You've just lied to me there. It was, it was remarkable. Um, but the best thing I've ever seen at Mind Body Spirit Festival, I think, was, was these guys in a sound chi. And they do needle-free acupuncture. So they do acupressure. They use sound vibrations instead of needles. And I kind of asked him what that meant. He said, well, you know, we just find the acupressure point and we stimulate them with, with sound vibrations. And when I was talking to them, you can kind of just ask them, oh, that sounds really interesting. You put on your, biggest, your best kind of naive, innocent face and just let them throw all their kind of information at you and you try and draw as much information from them as possible. And they were saying, well, yeah, we, we treat people with cancer. We treat people with... Um, we've got a team in, in uh, Africa at the moment treating people with AIDS, um, post-traumatic stress. It's really useful for a lot of these things. We have really great results and they were really giving me the hard sell. And unfortunately, they weren't testing it, they weren't demonstrating it at the time. So I kind of wandered around the rest of the Mind Body Spirit Festival and saw the dowsers and saw the person who thinks you can do past life aggression all the way back to the time when someone was a caveman. And I said, wow, a caveman, that's a long time ago. That must have been really hard to verify that they weren't just making it up. And he said, it was. It was pretty hard, to be honest. Um, but while I was doing that, I started hearing this noise like, psst, psst, psst. And I thought, what the hell's that noise? And then it struck me that it must be these guys. And I, I figured out, I reckon what they were doing. I, I thought, right, what they must be doing is they must be finding the, the acupressure point and then using like an air gun kind of thing, just a, a compressed air to pst, 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 on the pr- instead of the needle. Pst, pst. So I thought that's what it must be. So I went up to see this demonstration because someone appeared for a session. And there's a woman laid out on a, uh, on a table and there was a, the Chinese lady who was involved in the, the, the acupressure and she was running a hand down her arm and finding the acupressure point and she was going, pst, pst. She was just saying, pst. That was it. That was, the inter- that was the in- this entire thing. You know, cancer, AIDS, everything. Psh, psh, psh. Now, pished is how you scare away a cat. It's not how you scare away a cancer. You know, this is absolute nonsense. So we thought, well, this is quite interesting. So uh, <coughs> I, got, I, I spoke to a friend of mine, and my friend thought, well, actually, how about we, we call them up? How about we just go for a session of this? You know, we, we'd grown our skeptics in the pub group a little bit, and I'd found a few of the people who wanted to get a bit hands-on and play with stuff. And we had a little bit of, sort of spare money lying around from a couple of events, not very much, but enough to pay for one of these sessions. So my friend phoned them up, and she said, you know, about how she's having these terrible pains around her stomach, and they radiate around to her spine, and she's very lethargic and got no energy and has to sleep all the time. And she was reading the, the list of symptoms from the NHS website for cervical cancer. She wasn't saying she had cervical cancer, she was just saying she's reading these symptoms. And this, you know, this list was just saying, if you have these symptoms, you might want to see a doctor because it could be this. And obviously over the phone, the lady said, oh yeah, that's fine, don't worry about seeing a doctor, come in, we can help you with all those things, we can help you with everything. So I thought, great, well, I've, I've got my iPhone, I know I can do this undercover, so let's, let's, take, a, let's take a video, let's go along. So here I am in the, in the room with, uh, with Emma, who's, who's here for the session, and here's a lovely lady, Sue, who I think very much believed in everything that she was doing. Really hard to sit half a metre away from this and not laugh. <laughs> Even when you know it's coming, it's very, very difficult not to laugh. Um, my favourite bit was just after she did this, unfortunately my iPhone ran out of battery. But literally about two minutes after this, she was almost finished and she went... <laughs> and we both really lost it. It was so, so hard to keep it together. But as I say, these people, you know, they, they, were, they will believe what they're doing, but does that help? 
because they will still offer to treat people who are very sick. This was just in Manchester. It was just a high street kind of store in Manchester. You go upstairs and there's all this kind of stuff. Um, but there are people who've been very harmed by this. So there's, there's a case here in the Daily Mail about a, a woman who was a soldier. She had cancer. She went to the, the, the leader of this kind of, uh, this, this acupressure group in, on Harley Street in London and she died of cancer because of it, you know, because she, she chose this over real medicine. It's genuinely harmful. And in fact, it's actually on a list of kind of, uh, cult. It's, it's, it's listed as a, as a watched cult because the people who administer the treatments are people who've had treatments for something, who get really, bu- who buy fully into it and then suddenly they're spending their lives, they're uprooting their lives and coming all the way from Australia in one case to here just to be a practitioner in Manchester. And they genuinely believe it all. So there's very much a cult me- mentality. And that kind of protects the very top of the organisation who make the money and never touch a patient and never make a claim. And those are the ones who are very hard to get a hold of. Um, And this kind of leads me on to another kind of bit that we started playing with, because now we've kind of grown our group a little bit more. And we had a few more people kind of on our side and a few more different skill sets to kind of play with for people who wanted to do stuff. Um, And then these these guys set up in our backyard. So they're an international company that sells um, sports bands. In fact, this is the sports band, Shoesy Band. Um, and they said they were selling it to people for, uh, for, for all sorts of different sports. Primarily rugby was the big push they were going on. It would help your balance, your strength and your concentration. Uh, that was the claims that we made, uh, that they made. Uh, we had something else to say about it. Um, but we thought, it's a bit annoying that you've set up in Liverpool. You know, you're an international company, you're doing it in Australia and New Zealand, um, and we were warned of it by the Australian sceptics, and then you came to Liverpool, so we thought, well, we're going to play with these people. If you're going to set up in our backyard, then we're going, to, we're going to get involved. So we thought, we've now got a little bit more money set aside, and we've got some people with some real interesting skill sets. So how about we buy two of these bands? And uh, this is one of the remnant bands. Um, 60 quid a pop for, to, to boost your strength, balance, concentration. Um, I'm going to pass it around. So basically, this has got a, uh, a special vibrational nano chip in it that will resonate with your body's natural vibrations and enhance your concentration and your balance. So you can test if you do feel more uh, with, it, with enhanced concentration and strength. But if anyone can find the chip, um, don't tell anyone. I'll ask you during the Q&A. But I'd be surprised if you can find it. It took us, it took us a long time to find it. But we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll buy two of these. Um, we'll take the chip out of one of them. And then we'll do a proper double-blind test. And because they pitched this to rugby teams, we went to a local rugby team. Now, fortunately, the, vice pres- uh, the president of the Merseyside Skeptic Society, his brother is a, pro- is a semi-professional kicker for a local rugby team. And if you're going to be helping anyone in rugby with their strength, balance and concentration, it's going to help kicking. It was actually the team that was sponsored by Shoesy. So when Dave came along, when our, when our kind of uh, rugby player, uh, Dave, came along for, for our little, uh, little test, he was wearing his normal jersey, which has Shoesy written right across the front. And we thought, you've got to get rid of that because we're going to be done. If, we, if we're exposing you while well, you've got that. And so what we, we thought was, we've got these two. If we have him take 100 kicks and alternate the bands every 10, if we make sure he doesn't know whether he's re- using a real band or a fake band, we don't know. The only person who did know was Alice, who was a, who was a scientist who was very involved, so she kind of ran the whole protocol for it. Um, we'll just do a double or a triple blind test and see whether there's any effect from wearing this band from people who are taking a lot of kicks. Um, and then luckily, because we just had a big enough group, there was now somebody who was a photographer who said, can, can I come along? Can I take some photos? Can I, can I take some really nice photos of it? And there was someone else who was a video producer. He said, um, can I get a camera? And can we just film the whole thing? Can we run this like a, an episode of Mythbusters almost? And can we just run a proper test? Uh, and so that's exactly what we did. And we were able to edit it. And we were able to get this out to The Guardian. So there's our video kind of there in The Guardian. Uh, and and th- there is also in The Daily Mail. Um, and we found that there was no difference by using this band or by not using it. It's exactly the same. And if, I, if you ask me, it was a waste of money. Um, 
but I was actually very keen to get it in the Daily Mail. We actually took a little bit of criticism for, for targeting the Daily Mail, um, but I really wanted it in there because I thought it's like a Newton's cradle effect of bullshit. Is if we can put a real story in there, maybe it'll knock a bullshit story out. Maybe that day they won't cover something bollocks. So we, we, I phoned up the, the science editor of the Daily Mail, and they do have one. Um, I phoned them up about a fortnight before and said, what could, you, what could we do to make it more likely that you'll publish this? How do you make your job easier? And she gave me a list of things, make sure you get a good pack shot, make sure you get a quote from an expert, and we'll publish this. Um, but then at the same time, because as I say we, we'd grown our group, we had people who wanted to be involved and wanted to do something, wanted to offer the skill sets they felt they had, however they could offer them. And I think if there's anything I want you to take away from this talk is that no skill set is useless in a sceptical group. You might think that what, what you do isn't useful, but it takes all sorts. And the, the, more, the wider a group that we have and the more people we have from different backgrounds, the more effective we can be. Um, so we had people who were very much the detail-oriented, um, meticulous type of people. So we had them look over the website for Shoesy, look over all the advertising, look over all the point-of-sale stuff, all the leaflets, and just pick out anything that was a claim they couldn't substantiate. Because if you can do that, you can actually make a, a complaint to the Advertising Standards Authority, and you can just send them an email and say, on this, on this website, at this point, they say this. I don't think that's true. I don't think they can stand that up. I don't think there's evidence for it. If you submit that off to the advertising standards, they'll look in and they'll, they'll make Shoesy take down anything that they can't back up. And that's exactly what they did. A simple complaint, um, just to the ASA, took down everything from Shoesy's website. So they basically said nothing anymore apart from, do you want to buy a band? That was all it kind of said. Um, and it was actually, this, this complaint was so effective, it almost scuppered us. Because just at the time we handed our video and press release to the Guardian and the Daily Mail, saying, this is what Shoesy say, Shoesy stopped saying all of those things. And the lawyers were like, yeah, they don't say that. That's not true. And we almost kind of like knackered ourselves by being too effective in a way. So this kind of multi-pronged approach and people bringing the skills that they have, I think, is incredibly useful. I think the more we can do that in skepticism, the more effective we'll be. Um, and then the kind of long and short of it was, this is a map of distributors for Shoesy uh, around the world, or certainly around Europe, and there's not one in the UK anymore. We managed to shut them down, which was kind of lovely. Um, it did mean that the person who set up then went on to become a nutritionist. So I don't know if, like, when God shuts a door, he opens a window. I don't know if that's kind of... Uh, I don't know how, how, how that works. Um, and this, one, uh, this takes me on to kind of the last sort of big kind of activism thing I want to talk about. And people might know about this. Was anyone... Has anyone, has anyone heard of the 1023 campaign uh, about homeopathy? Was anyone part of it the first kind of year? I think Oxford had a couple of people. Ah, so you were involved. Perfect. So for, it seems like a lot of people aren't sure about this. So... Um, what this was, it was probably the earliest thing that we did. We were kind of a bit annoyed that homeopathy is paid for on the NHS to a tune of about four million a year, it was. Um, it's on sale in Boots, um, which has a really great reputation for really good healthcare products, and at the same time will sell you sugar pills pretending it's medicine. And they, they admitted that they know it doesn't work, but we sell it because people buy it, which I think is, is a ludicrous idea. So we thought, well, most people, when they think of homeopathy, they think it's something herbal, they think it's something alternative, but they don't know what it is. They don't realise it's got nothing at all in it. It's just sugar pills. So we thought, well, maybe the best way to demonstrate this is to get people from cities all around the country to go into their local booths and buy some homeopathy, ideally homeopathic sleeping tab tablets, and then to step outside of their local booths and overdose on that homeopathy en masse, all at the same time, all around the country. Because nobody has any ill effects because this is just sugar. Uh, so here is our, our campaign. Here's the 1023 campaign. Uh, and the first year, it was very effective. I think it was the number one story in the BBC. It ran in The Guardian, The Telegraph. It made it on the television a couple of times. And the really nice thing about that was that the way we named it was very tactical. So it was called the 1023 campaign. It was named after the Avogadro constant. So because when you, uh, when you make homeopathy, you dilute it. You, you put a, a drop of homeopathy into 90, a drop of a substance into 99 drops of water. 
shake that up to activate the water's vibrational memory. Um, take a drop of that into another 99 drops of water and shake it and carry on. And by the time you get over here, there's nothing but water left. And this is what they'll sell you for £5 a pop. But there's a point in there, the Avogadro's limit, where what you've done is you've diluted it so much, you've just got water. There's the, the chance of finding anything in that original substance are so small, you're just selling water. And that Avogadro's limit is 6.02 times 10 to the 23. But whenever homeopathy is talked about in the press, what they say is, oh, it's very dilute substances. It's ultra-dilute, where there's, where there's hardly anything left. They never explain that there isn't anything in, that, that there's almost certainly nothing at all in any homeopathic pill that you buy. So we thought if we, call our, if we name our campaign after the Avogadro constant, which is the 1023 there, and if we all overdose at 1023 in the morning, then it's going to seem so specific that the papers can't do anything but tell you about Avogadro, because otherwise it's going to look sort of a perversely specific time. So because of that, we managed to crowbar, we managed to, to strategically crowbar in the real science. And all the newspapers that had to cover this then had to cover this with, with genuine science. Uh, and, and I think we even had um, master students looking at the newspaper coverage before and after the 1023 campaign. And it actually did make an effect. People then started to understand that even when, the, when, the, when homeopathy was mentioned, they would explain it in much more real terms. And people, the public understanding went up a little. Um, and then it struck me the next year that well, we've done the UK. How far can we go with this little simple idea of having everybody do something quite small, but all, all at exactly the same time? Uh, so this is what we did in 2011. Um, I got in touch with sceptical organisations all around the world, and we managed to get 32 countries involved. Uh, so on the 6th of February uh, 2011, we got uh, 32 countries all around the world, 1,700 people in 70 cities, all to take an overdose at uh, 10 to 3 local time. Uh, including a guy in Antarctica, which was really cool. He just happened to be there. But he, he took some homeopathic sleeping spray with him and sent us a video back. So we got a really lovely video of him kind of uh, t- taking it. Um, and we had everybody saying our slogan, which was homeopathy, there's nothing in it, uh, in local language. And this was really effective. It was debated on, in countries all around the world, on TV. Uh, in Brazil, they debated it in their national parliament. And they dropped homeopathy, homeopathic support from their healthcare system based on the campaign uh, and the overdose that was done in Rio as part of our campaign. It was, it was insane. It was amazing. Um, and there's a bit that I really like about it. I tell everyone this. No one thinks it's as cool as I do, but it, it, it took me... I, I'm really happy about this. I'm going to tell everyone anyway. We did it on the 6th of February at 10.23, which for a piece of performance art is 6.02.10.23, which is the Avogadro constant exactly. Doesn't get that much of a laugh. I love that, so I'm going to tell everyone every single time. That, I, that took me ages to think up, and it, we had to, and it really scuppered a lot of our kind of uh, progress doing it that way because we had people in uh, Eastern Europe freezing at 10 o'clock in the morning in the in the middle of winter just because I wanted to do something a, a bit of performance art. So I think for for the, the sacrifice those guys made, I should mention it. Uh, but here's some of the nice kind of photos from it. So this is one of my favourite ones. This is from Zaragoza University. There's a statue there of Samuel Hahnemann, who's the guy who invented homeopathy. And there he is wearing our T-shirt and wearing our hat on our campaign. So that was quite nice. Um, but there's some quite interesting unintended or unexpected consequences from this. Because what we were trying to do was say, this is a bit of a rabble-rousing. We're not trying to prove anything. We're not trying to prove homeopathy doesn't work. We've had 200 years of science doing that. Um, what we're trying to do is just demonstrate that, first of all, that this stuff isn't real. To d- demonstrate to people that, that what homeopathy actually is. But then also what we're trying to do is get people who are interested in this doing stuff, trying to energise people and say, well, now you've, you're, kind of, you're all part of this. What can you do? Where can you go? And it goes in, in very odd ways, and you can't predict where. So before 10.23, there was um, the NHS Choices website, one of the, kind of the, the go-to places for health information, had very misleading information there about homeopathy. It would, say it, it would explain it in a homeopath term. So it's a very natural remedy. It's very gentle. Homeopaths will say this. Homeopaths will say that. Didn't say anything about the evidence. But because of the pressure and the spotlight that was turned on it through the, the 10.23 campaign and the supporters of that then kind of looking everywhere, 
um, they actually updated their page and now have very specifically very scientific uh, evidence on there, very scientific um, messaging, say that there's no evidence that homeopathy works. And the cool thing about that is when they announced that their page was going to be updated, they announced the updated page at 10.23 in the morning. Uh, as a lovely little nod to us. And I actually met, when I was doing this talk in Exeter, I met the guy who did that. I met the guy who said, uh, I worked for the NHS, so I did their website at the time, and I saw all these people saying, demonstrating that homeopathy was nonsense. I saw the weight of opinion against it, and I used that to go to my boss and say, we need to change this, because we're on the wrong side of this, and it's going to be very embarrassing if we don't move. It's, it's odd how that kind of effect, how that little kind of idea can have an effect. Um, and there's another kind of a, 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 a fun thing that we did recently. So this is part of the Good Thinking Society where, where I now work. Um, it's World Homeopathy Awareness Week every year. So the, the 10th of April every year is World Homeopathy Awareness Week. And then there's one in June, that's UK Homeopathy Awareness Week. Um, and every year it's just an opportunity for homeopaths to sort of sell their stuff in the papers, to phone up journalists and say, hey, we've got this really lovely, gentle kind of story about this woman's eczema was cured with homeopathy or something quite mealy-mouthed and easy like that. And often it gets published. So we thought... This is, a bit, this is a bit annoying, really. Homeopathy awareness. Homeopaths aren't really looking for homeopathy awareness. What they're looking for is homeopathy kind of vague familiarity. They don't want people to understand what it is or how it doesn't work or, or why it's dangerous. They just want people to kind of know the word and have heard it. So if you went to uh, World Homeopathy, you get that. If you go to homeopathyawarenessweek.com, uh, you get redirected to the Nelsons website. Nelsons being the homeopathic uh, pharmaceutical company, the manufacturer that supplies boots. And if you go to homeopathyawarenessweek.co.uk, uh, you also go to Nelson's. So they clearly thought there was money in this. And then if you go to homeopathyawarenessweek.org, uh, that was our site. We thought we'd buy that. I thought that'd be quite fun. Because uh, we thought, well, if, if homeopaths want people to be aware of homeopathy, that's what we want as skeptics. We're trying to spread awareness of homeopathy. Because homeo- homeopaths don't want to tell you what it really is. So let's give this an opportunity. Let's re- really try and push this and say, Homeopathy Awareness Week should be the greatest opportunity we have every week to tell people how nonsense homeopathy is. And let's see if we can turn their campaign on its head a little bit and really spread some genuine awareness. Um, and that's what we're really trying to do is to, to create a resource for people who don't know much about homeopathy to come here and find out the stuff that homeopaths will not make you aware of, but also for journalists so that they wouldn't just keep repeating the same old stuff without any kind of balance or any kind of challenge. And that's what we're really looking for. Let's um, skip over that to realize I'm kind of running late. And, and whether it worked or not, it's hard to kind of measure, but we got about 30,000 hits to the site in, in a day, uh, well, in eight hours, in fact. And we had 80,000 in, in a week. And it was much, much higher, uh, much more, more popular, much, much uh, more heavily hit than the actual World Homeopathy Awareness Week uh, site. So I really like the idea that next year, when they're about to hit, hit send on that press release announcing World Homeopathy Awareness Week, they just kind of pause and think, should we? Because maybe this will backfire like it did last time. Uh, I'm just going to skip over that one. Um, so this is another thing that we found out about homeopathy, and I think this, this, is, this is something that if people are interested, they can get involved in a little bit, because I think this could be quite an important, uh, important step. In Liverpool, we had this group called the Northwest Friends of Homeopathy. And this is a group that lobbies local politicians. Uh, it's, a, it's a group that kind of tries to raise awareness, tries to raise kind of power uh, and public interest. Uh, and also trying, it'll, it'll go to people who are ill, who are on homeopathy, and then tell them, well, the government's trying to take your homeopathy away, your homeopathy away and, and you should do something. It'll try and rally kind of patient groups. And it's quite a, quite a useful kind of lobbying force, really. And what they were doing at the time is they were lobbying the homeopathic hospital in Liverpool. So Liverpool used to have a homeopathic hospital, which is a ludicrous two words to put together. And they were lobbying it to say, you can't take homeopathy awareness away because look at all these patients who rely on it. And they, they brought 30 patients into a, a consultation um, to, to say all these people, just so those people can say, I'm really ill and I really need homeopathy. But we found some interesting stuff. So 
the homeopathic hospital was, was, uh, had a contract uh, for, for supply from Willeda Limited, which is a uh, multi-million pound uh, massive uh, pharmaceutical company that, creates, that, that makes uh, homeopathic products out of Germany. They make something like 300 million a year, something like that, out of, uh, out of homeopathy. Now, Willeda Limited were supplying homeopathic products for free to the Northwest Friends of Homeopathy. And there may have been some funding as well. We, didn't, we couldn't find anything for, for certain, but they certainly were suppliers and were sort of uh, donors to that, uh, to that local group. And that local group was chaired by a guy called Dr. Hugh Nielsen, who just happened to be the lead clinician of the homeopathic hospital. And I think that's very clearly a conflict of interest kind of going on there. And, you know, we're always the ones who are shills. But if you, if you ask me, that seems like somebody is, is being paid to make sure that they keep signing the checks uh, right there. So we kind of spotted all this, and we also spotted that this group was petitioning the local government, was petitioning the rural PCT, the Primary Care Trust, to make sure that it was carried on being funded in the rural. But again, luckily, we managed to grow our group to a point where just when the world were having a, a full PCT meeting, an open hearing, to see whether we should ditch this stuff or not, a local councillor was one of our members and said, well, if you're going to have the friends of homeopathy speaking, you shouldn't balance them against the doctors. The doctors have the evidence. If you're going to have a fringe group for homeopathy, what you need is a fringe group against homeopathy. And then you've got a balanced debate. So I actually got called into the PCT meeting and sat at a kind of big horseshoe table with a little microphone giving evidence about why we should ditch homeopathy from the world NHS and about how it's important to keep an open mind, but you've got to temper it with rational thought as well. And the cool thing was, because the evidence I gave and because we were there to advocate on the side of the doctors so they weren't fighting a losing battle, uh, we were able to get the world to kill, NHS, uh, kill homeopathy NHS. We just got rid of it. They wouldn't supply it anymore. And then, about a year or two later, the government got rid of all the primary care trusts and replaced them with something else, clinical commissioning groups, which meant all that work was kind of useless because now it was a different set of people who were doing this and they, were making, they could do things. It's, like, it's a different process. It's GPs who are much more involved. And it's another opportunity for homeopathy groups to then start lobbying a different set of people who aren't used to that kind of lobbying. And so this is happening right now. And I know in the world that they've got this group is now starting to, starting to lobby your clinical commissioning group. So if people are interested in anything like this, your local CCG is open. Um, you can... Put freedom, you don't even need to put a freedom of information request in. You can just email them and ask them questions about stuff. You can go along to their meetings. You can see their minutes before a meeting and their agenda after a meeting. And you can find out if homeopaths are doing this in your local area or if there's some other fringe interest alt medicine group who are doing this. And you can try and represent the side of rationality and see if you can kind of hold back the ties a little bit as well. So I, I, if anyone wants to do, if that strikes anyone, I think it's quite useful to do. And if we can do this in lots of places all around the country, I think we can have a bit of an effect. I mean, I think I, I got an email from a guy just today who found out that in his local CCG they were spending £187,000 a year on homeopathy. And he found that out just by emailing them. He said, under freedom of information, can you tell me how much you spend? And they came back. And if you, if you counted the number of CCGs, that could be quite a lot of money. Um, and then there's a lot of stuff kind of on the high street. Now, I, won't, I won't kind of go through all this, but um, the, the, there's been lots of investigations that even Boots and, and Holland Barrett will, will often kind of give you stuff. And I know that um, Simon Singh with Newsnight went into a, a high street homeopath a couple of years ago and said, sent a student in to say, I'm traveling to West Africa. I've been told that um, I need to take anti-malarials. I'm very worried about the effects of anti-malarials. Have you got anything else? And she was offered homeopathic alternatives to anti-malarials, which is, which is crazy. And, and that was, you know, the... Authorities came down quite hard, but they're still doing it. I was in Holland and Barrett's maybe six months ago, and I was offered uh, garlic and vitamin B12 to stop me getting malaria, um, and offered homeopathic tablets for my persistent migraines that I, that I made up, but someone else could genuinely have them. And it's, it's really quite dangerous, I think. So there's, there's also something to be done here, I think. 
Um, so I guess kind of the, 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 the sort of final messages really of the talk that, I'm, that are really now um, is what I'm trying to express is that first of all being out there and, and playing with this stuff rather than just kind of looking at it gets quite interesting you get interesting stories out of it you have odd experiences and I think kind of skepticism and active skepticism really needs all sorts of people so I don't think there's any skill set you might have that we couldn't use that, that, that someone couldn't use and whether that's a local skeptics group whether it's an individual who's just running a campaign somewhere whether it's a, a charity like my own um, that we're trying to actually sort of counter this kind of pseudoscience and see where we can be most effective so I think what we need you know there, there are lots of things that people can do if you've just got time enthusiasm if you've got you know the time to make to, to make complaints to, to go and visit these kind of places to see what's happening at your local mind body spirit festival maybe you'll get some good stories out of it but maybe you'll find something interesting too and it's surprising how simple things can be and how little effort it might take so even for a web designer um, one of the guy who runs the most skeptic society with me noticed that the website howdoeshomeopathywork.com didn't exist there was nothing there so it took him 15 minutes to put this up <laughs> and that gets like a couple of hundred thousand views a month you know, and it's not changing anyone's mind but maybe it's making people laugh and maybe it's making people to send this to their friends that they would never have talked about homeopathy with before and maybe it's kind of spread the message a little bit so I guess that's kind of where I want to kind of uh, talk. And there's other things that we're doing with, the, with, the, with the, the Good Thinking Society to try and do this kind of thing. So one of the things we're actually doing, it's, it's a bit too late to apply now, but we'll, we'll be running another one, is like a hack day on alternative medicine. So we're thinking if we can find lots of people with lots of different skill sets and lots of enthusiasm who want to put the time into something but don't know what, or maybe they have an idea but don't know how to get it done, we're running a day where people can come and we'll just get everybody who has those skill sets together and see what happens. What, what happens if we get a dozen people in a room with a whole mandate of that day to plan stuff? to think what can we affect how can we affect it and what do we do and that's one thing we're looking to do and if this works then we want to do more of these things and get more people involved I think the more we can sort of spread this and have people quite hands on um, the more interesting stories that go out there but the more effective we are as a kind of a counter to to either the lobbying or the kind of the the seductive arguing of the people who are you know purveyors of pseudoscience uh, and this is kind of one of the big things that we want to do with Good Thinking. I'll just finish on, on this, really, which is a, a bit of an idea of what the Good Thinking Society are all about. Because I've mentioned them a couple of times, but I want to kind of highlight what we're all about, really. Um, so what I think the Good Thinking Society are about is it's kind of like the four pillars, I would say, of, of scepticism. Which, first of all, is science advocacy, which is putting a positive view of science out there in the world, like, making people aware that science has a huge role to play and is a positive force in our lives. It's not that thing that was scribbled on a, a chalkboard when you were 13 that you didn't really care about because it was so dry and boring. It has a tangible effect on our lives, especially at a time where people, so many people still don't think climate is changing, still don't think this kind of stuff is real. I think we really need to kind of make sure we help push science as, uh, and the, 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 the positivity that it can offer. Um, the other side of it is consumer protection. So how do we make people aware of stuff that isn't true? How do we make people aware of the things that could harm them, the things that could waste their time, waste their money? And that's things like the homeopathy stuff. Um, then it's, it's direct activism. So it's who's out there selling this stuff? And who's out there saying that the worst of this stuff? Who's being the kind of most dangerous? How do we stop them? How do we find... There's a, there was a guy uh, very recently who was doing live blood analysis to, uh, to claim to, to cure and help people's cancer and all sorts of stuff. And because of the work of somebody at the Good Thinking Society, he now was in court, and in the end, he's no longer able to practice. And we stopped that guy making very dangerous claims to very sick people, and I think that's very important. And then it's, it, then it's acting as a media watchdog, which, which I think is the fourth thing that skeptics can do, which is... First of all, highlighting bad reporting, so where, where science or even just reporting in general is quite terrible. We can try and report that and kind of be the stick. But I think we also need to be the carrot. 
How do we work with journalists to make sure that they're, they're better? How do we give them the resources? Because when a journalist wants to talk to a homeopath, they've got a million people to talk to. They've got the society of homeopathy just waiting there and, and pushing themselves on them. And that's why those kind of stories appear in the press. Where's the sceptical side of that? And that's where we want to try and come in, is, is make sure that journalists have access to good information and maybe are more willing to publish um, a more realistic view of, of an issue. And then the fifth thing that we're looking to do, which I think is probably more about us than, than the various the skeptics groups. So I think the first four is what any skeptic can be doing or when any skeptical can be doing. But what we want to do as a charity is then community support. So how do, we, how do we coordinate different groups and get them together? How do we find someone who's got an idea and doesn't know how to get it done? How do we find them the manpower and the expertise to get it done? And how do we find people who just want to do something but aren't sure what? How do we find them a cause to fight for? And that's kind of what we've done in 1023, but it's also what we want to do an awful lot more of. Um, so that's kind of where I want to want to finish with the idea of kind of lifting the lid and get your hands on and being being kind of out there. Um, I realise I've probably gone on a bit long than I should have done, but uh, you've all listened very well <laughs> and, and uh, been very attentive. So thank you for being a great audience.